Jesus stands trial before the Sanhedrin and then the Roman governor of his day. That's next on Abounding Grace. This is amazing grace. We've all heard stories of those who have been falsely accused and convicted. Some are spending a lifetime in jail for a crime they didn't commit, but nothing can compare to what we'll hear about today on Abounding Grace. Jesus, God in human flesh, who has never committed a sin and yet was accused and falsely convicted. We'll hear all about it today and tomorrow as Pastor Ed Taylor finishes John chapter 18. Chapter 18, where we'll finish off the chapter today in our verse-by-verse study of John. Jesus has just been betrayed by Judas. Judas brings a detachment of Roman troops into the Garden of Gethsemane. It says in verse 12 of chapter 18, the detachment of troops and the captain of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. They led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And it was Caiaphas who gave counsel to the Jews, verse 14, that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. And the servants of the officers who had made a fire of coals stood there. And it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Then the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. And Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I've done nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me and what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. Verse 22. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? And Jesus answered him, If I've spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore, they said to him, You are also not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. It was just a few moments earlier that Jesus predicted to Peter that he would deny him. And remember Peter's response as another gospel. We put all the gospels together to get a full picture of these events and these trials. And you remember the response in Mark's gospel was, no way, never, I will never deny you. 
These, even if everyone is made to stumble, I will not stumble, is a paraphrase of Peter's response. It was filled with self-confidence. He, he was very self-confident in his loyalty and his commitment to Jesus. And I believe he was sincere. I believe he really meant it. I believe that he was not just merely trying to place himself in a higher place than the rest of the disciples, but he was passionately expressing his commitment, I will never, ever, never deny you. And just moments later, the rooster crows, and it wasn't but three times he denied him before the rooster crowed. Really, Peter's denial began began back with his denial that all would fall. And we spent a whole week looking at Peter's decisions that led him to backslide away from Jesus. We learned how not to backslide by looking carefully at Peter's life. If you're taking notes, let's just review that quickly in looking at Peter's life, how not to backslide. Number one, Peter was self-confidence when he should have been selfless. Number two, we found Peter sleeping when he should have been watching and praying. Thirdly, we learned that Peter was impulsive when he should have been waiting on the Lord. Fourthly, he was running away when he should have been drawing near. Fifthly, Peter was following at a distance when he should have been following close. And finally, we find Peter warming himself at the fires of the enemy. And as they kept asking him and pressuring him, he denied the Lord. He finally broke and turned against the Lord. And his, his denial caused him to weep, to go out and weep bitterly. The last step of his backsliding and denial, really, we could actually add a number seven that I didn't add, add later, when, previously when we did the Bible study, could add a number seven, and that was Peter just completely went back to what he was doing before. He just went to go be a fisherman anymore. He, he concluded that, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to follow Jesus anymore. There he is dead. And, and after the resurrection... If you go to Israel with us, we'll take you to the area where they say traditionally this happened. But we go there very early in the morning. We try to beat everybody there. We got to get, ex- get up extra early so we can beat everywhere to the side of the Galilee there where the time where G- Jesus comes to the waters and he calls Peter and he begins to restore him and bring him back into a place of service and ministry again. It was a difficult time for Peter. It's in John 21 that Peter's being searched for by Jesus and Jesus finds him and encourages him. Peter does deal with his disappointment. Uh, He is disappointed in himself. Disappointment has everything to do with expectations so that when you and I express a disappointment, what we are expressing is that someone did not meet our expectations. But Disappointment isn't just reserved for other people. We can often find ourselves disappointed in ourselves. So let me ask you this question, and I want you to answer very loudly if you can. Have you ever been disappointed in yourself? Well, that's good. It's good because Saturday night, nobody answered. (laughs) I certainly have. Disappointed in myself and in a decision that I made or didn't make or something that I said or I didn't say. Disappointment, you know that you're in the realm of disappointment when you start using words like I could have, or I should have, or I would have. You could start using phrases and hear phrases like, man, why did I do that? 
Why did I say that? I thought I was a lot stronger than that. I thought I was a lot more mature, a little bit farther along. Why do I feel that way? And disappointment, really the root of it, is because you trusted in yourself. That's a painful realization. The fact that you're disappointed with yourself tells us that you were holding on to yourself. When I'm disappointed in myself, I had high expectations that I didn't meet. I expected more of myself. I expected more of who I am and where I've been, and yet failure, failure is common to all of us. And for some of you, God has brought you here today to hear these words. That even though you may be disappointed in yourself, God is not disappointed in you. He doesn't see you the way that you see you. He doesn't put the kind of expectations and pressure on you that you put on yourself. No, the Bible says that God knows us with a perfect knowledge. In the beginning of Psalm 103, the Bible declares that God as a father has compassion on us. In the Old King James, New King James, it says he has pity on us. But I like compassion as a much better translation of that Hebrew word. That God has compassion on us. Why? Because he knows that we're just dust. The problem is, is that we aren't so willing to admit that we're just dust. And we're not so willing to admit that our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know them? But God, he's not disappointed. He has the perfect expectations on you and gives us the power to fulfill what he expects. And in your failure, you may find God using it in your life. And you might, be, you might find him using it in a very specific way, and that is to bring discipline into your life. Or the old King James word, chastening. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12, and let's learn a little bit about the chastening hand of God. In the midst of failure, and all of the disappointments of life, and the difficulties of life, God is using that difficult time as a time to discipline you. A time of chastening, a time of training. Pick up with me in verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 12. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Often weariness and discouragement are linked to disappointment. So be careful. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Endure with him. Verse 4. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin. And have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Circle that word chastening just so you know. It means discipline. It means discipline. Chastening of the Lord is discipline. Nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If, verse 7, you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. 
And now verse 11 is like the biggest understatement of all in verse 11. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In the message translation, it says in Hebrews 12, 11, at the time, discipline isn't much fun. It always feels like it's going against the grain. Later, of course, it pays off handsomely, for it's the well-trained who find themselves mature in their relationship with God. Discipline in itself isn't meant to be pleasant. If it was, it would have very little power to impart to us the correction that we need to receive. But by its very nature, discipline is very unpleasant to administer and to endure. How many times have you had to say to your kids, parents, or maybe you heard it when you were a kid, where there it is, it's that time of discipline, they're in trouble, and then you say, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And your kids are like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Why don't you hand that paddle to me and let's try that. Let's try it the other way around. Or let, why don't I put you in timeout and we'll see how he feels for you. you know, it, it's, it's hard as a parent. Any parent will tell you it's a hard thing to discipline. For some parents, it's so hard to discipline that they've chosen not to discipline. They've chosen to overlook things and chosen not to deal with things and set them aside. But the Bible says that God loves us and one of the ways that we know he loves us is he chastens us. He disciplines us using our own disappointments as tools in his hands. The times when we were so dependent upon ourselves, God reveals to us, you you can't be dependent on yourself. You can't have those high expectations for yourself. Your life is to trust in me. And yet, although it's it's, it's not fun in the beginning, the end result is always a good thing. We become more mature in the Lord. Peter's going to grow up from this experience. He may think at the time right now that this is the end of his life. He's going to go back and be a fisherman. This whole thing of following Messiah, giving my life to him, dedicating all that I am to him. Look where I'm at now. I denied him. I failed him. I'm a failure. I'm going to go be a... I was a much better fisherman than I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And now he goes back and weeps bitterly, watches everything go down, and by the time he's done, he's back fishing again. But he will recover. We'll see that at the end of our study in John. For the remaining of our time, let's look at the trials here. We've looked at the two trials now before the Sanhedrin, and I'll explain that to you in a minute. But let's go on in verse 28 to the end of the chapter and find these trials in John 18. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium, It was very early in the morning, but they themselves did not go into the praetorium lest they should be defiled so that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Verse 34. Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself on this? Or did others tell you this about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight 
so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered, You say rightly that I'm a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I've come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Now for you Bible students, between verse 38 and verse 39 is the time where Jesus is sent to Herod from Pilate. Pilate is a consummate politician, and he really doesn't want to deal with this. And so he says, I find no fault in him, but doesn't release him. Sends him to Herod to see if Herod will take care of it. And that's found in another gospel. Herod sends him back to Pilate, and that's where verse 39 comes up. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they all cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. And Barabbas was a robber. So we have quite a few trials going on, a lot of information in just a short amount of verses. The first trial... The first presentation between, before Annas and Caiaphas was his religious trial. And that was before the group known as the Sanhedrin. If you're writing that down, it's S-A-N-H-E-D-R-I-N. The Sanhedrin. Let me give you a little background. The Sanhedrin was the supreme court of the Jews. And was composed of 71 members. Within its membership included Sadducees, Pharisees, and scribes. All were experts in the law, the the Torah, the law of God. They were experts in law and respected men and elders among their community. Any vacancies in the court were filled by the present high priest of the day. Facing, they sat in a semicircle in such a way that each member could see each other as they were hearing the testimony. And facing that semicircle was a group of rabbi students... And they would sit there and have the opportunity to to dialogue and even defend the person that was there. The official meeting of the Sanhedrin was in an area known as the Hall of the Hewn Stone, which was in the temple precincts. And the decisions of the Sanhedrin were not valid unless it was reached at a meeting held in that place. So they couldn't have the meeting anywhere. It had to be in the temple precincts. The court could not meet at night, which makes this meeting illegal. It was unjust and illegal. They couldn't meet at night, but we learn it's very early in the morning when he leaves because the meeting had just done. So they couldn't meet at night, and witnesses were to be examined separately. And the evidence that was given must be valid and agree in every detail. Each individual member of the Sanhedrin was to give their verdict separately, beginning with the youngest and going on to the oldest. And if a verdict was the verdict of death, a night must elapse before it was carried out so that the court might have a chance to change its mind in its decision toward mercy. Jesus is being thrown around between the religious courts, the ones that have planned and plotted to take advantage, take him out. He has to sit before them. And then, knowing that they don't, Rome had taken the right of capital punishment away from their subjects. Capital punishment could only be enforced by the Roman government. And the Jewish people, the leaders know this, and they send him where? To Pilate. To a politician. Who at this time, according to history, is already in trouble. Pilate had one responsibility and one responsibility only, and that was to keep the peace. 
keep everybody happy and keep the peace. That's all he needed to do is appease the people so that there would be no reports going back to Rome that Pilate wasn't doing his job. Up to this point, history records at least two major uprisings under the leadership of Pilate, which means his job was on the line. This was his last chance. And the last thing he wanted was for the Jews to start another uprising and send word to Rome. And not only would he lose his oversight, he could very well lose his life. This is life and death for Pilate. So Pilate examines him and talks to him. As he is asking these questions, notice in verse 29. Notice verse 29. Pilate went out to them and asked what the accusations were. Luke tells us what the accusations were. These false accusations. Luke 23 tells us, number one, Luke, Jesus was being accused of subverting the nation with his followers, which was false. Number two, Jesus was accused of forbidding people to pay taxes, which again was false. The third accusation that came against Jesus was that he claimed to be Christ the King. That was true. Except that it was twisted by them to say that his declaration of being a king was intended to subvert the Roman Caesar and the king on the throne. And it was a complete fabrication of the facts, these false accusations. And one of the things that Jesus teaches us that is very relevant to our lives is Jesus, perfect man, God in human flesh, never committed a sin, even found faultless by Pilate, a human court, did everything right, lived his life the best way a man could possibly live, and people still accused him of egregious sins. He, he did everything right, and there were still accusations. It's so demonic, accusa- false accusations. That's what the Bible really declares, that the devil is the accuser of the brethren, who accuses us day and night before the throne of God. You're listening to Pastor Ed Taylor on Abounding Grace and a message titled Falsely Convicted. Now, Pastor Ed, you just explained to our listeners that Jesus faced false accusations, and we can expect the same in our lives. So how should we handle them when they occur? Well, you know, Larry, that's a heavy question that can go a lot of different answers, but I think the first way that we should handle them is by pausing and praying. Don't make any response or reaction out of emotion or defensiveness, but simply pause and pray, asking God for the wisdom that's needed to respond. And then after you pause and pray, it may require a Matthew 18 type of response where we go to the person, just you and him alone. It may require that we allow it, uh, we just allow it to go forward and trust in the Lord. Uh, It may require that we give some sort of answer, but I think no matter what, pausing and praying, allowing the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom, because you know it hits right to the heart, Uh, we get super emotional, and we don't want to make any big decisions and emotions. So trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, acknowledge Him in all your ways, and He'll direct your paths. It's that's true in the good times, and in these difficult times, 
of walking in the Savior's footstep falsely accused. That is very helpful. Thanks, Ed. To hear this program again, all you need to do is log on to AboundingGraceRadio.com. And this month, we've picked out a book we think you'll enjoy. It would even make a great gift or a stocking stuffer. It's The Case for Christmas by Lee Strobel. Sort of like a journalist, Lee Strobel investigates the identity of the child in the manger, focusing on the hows and whys of Christmas. It'll serve to reaffirm your faith and help seekers pursue solid answers about the first coming of Christ. We'll send it your way when you support Abounding Grace with a gift of $25 or more. Please remember this radio ministry is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you. And we'd appreciate it if you'd remember us in your year-end giving to the Lord. To request The Case for Christmas, please call toll-free 877-30-GRACE or visit us online at calvaryco.store. Again, that's calvaryco.store. Glad you've taken time out for our study in the Gospel of John. We'll pick up where we left off next time we get together on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. This is amazing grace. Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church, Colorado, here in Aurora.